Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. My name is Ryan Miner. You are listening to a special edition of a minor detail brought to you by the Change Montgomery County Radio Network. Uh, this morning, we are talking about something very important, and I have feedback. This always happens. I forget to close out my browser, and as I was saying, we have an important caller calling in here soon. His name is Ryan Morrow, and we're going to be discussing the nuclear deal. Uh, Mr. Morrow, he is a national security analyst for the Clarion Project, uh, which is an educational organization focused on Islamic extremism and providing a platform for Muslim voices against it. Uh, the films like Obsession, The Third Jihad, Iranium, and Horror Diaries have been seen by over 50 million people. Uh, just a little bit more about Ryan. He's a consultant to various government agencies, political campaigns, and policymakers, and he's an adjunct professor at home of Homeland Security and Counterterrorism. So again, this morning we're going to be discussing in depth the Iranian nuclear deal with Ryan Morrow, who is a national security expert. Yesterday I had an opportunity to discuss uh, the Iranian deal with my congressman, Congressman John Delaney. And as many of you know, I have been focused on covering on my personal blog at RyanRMinor.com, the 6th Congressional District. And I'm trying to, you know, obviously learn more about the candidates. I try to put out as much information as possible. And I have to say, I'm very appreciative of the congressman coming on to discuss um, the Iranian deal. So... Um, I, I want to thank him again for that, and I'm going to try to get him back on after he votes or maybe even before. Uh, he was very uh, – you know, congressmen are busy, so they give up their time um, to do that, and I always appreciate it. So um, we're just waiting for Ryan to call in, and we're going to be talking, like I said, about the uh, the Iranian deal, which has been in the news. And yesterday, uh, Senator Barbara Mikulski signed on to the deal. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and bring in Ryan now. Ryan Morrow, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm I'm very excited. And I was before you came on, I was reading a little bit about your background, but I'd love to give you uh, the opportunity now to uh, have some more insight into this and uh, talk a little bit about yourself, and then we'll go right into it. Sure. I'm a regular analyst on um, different networks, the most prominent one being Fox News Channel, and I'm the national security analyst for the Clarion Project at clarionproject.org. Uh, we make some really po powerful documentaries on topics like this that uh, your listeners may be familiar with, and I'm also an adjunct professor of counterterrorism. Yeah, and, and uh, you're also pursuing your Ph.D. in criminal justice with Homeland Security Specialization. How's that going? Uh, well, I guess as good as a Ph.D. can go, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> like, it's not the most enjoyable thing. I know. I'm, I'm, in, I'm currently in school now for my MBA, and it's a lot of writing, a lot of work, and a lot of studying outside of you know the, the daily rigors of, of, of a schedule, especially as someone as busy as yourself. And, um, you know, as a little bit uh, more of a preamble and in intro into uh, your bio, you've been on many television stations, uh, frequently a guest on Fox News. In fact, Sean Hannity refers to you as one of the best and brightest national security experts. And uh, Greg Gutfeld, who I never had an opportunity to actually meet, but says that he knows foreign affairs like I know awkward stares. And that's really funny because <laughs> we all love Greg Gutfeld. So, <laughs> um, 
Okay, Ryan, I, I want to talk. I want to open this up uh, to you, and I want, if you can, I'd like for you to provide a rundown, a synopsis of the deal, the good and bad, and then we'll get into the specifics. So please, the floor is yours, Ryan. Sure. Well, the deal is 160 pages long, uh, so it's very difficult to cover um, it in totality, um, but I would say on the positive side, um, what must be conceded is that it does open Iran up to more intrusive inspections than they've had prior, even though there's a lot of criticism of the inspections process that gives Iran uh, plenty of time to hide things, up to 24 days of delay. I would argue that it's significantly longer than that when you look at the bureaucratic tricks that they do. But it does, in fact, um, open up Iran to inspections that they don't currently have, that they didn't have before the interim nuclear deal. The first phase was signed. And um, it does scale back their nuclear activity if they comply with it. Um, but then there's an exaggeration which says that it blocks their path to a nuclear weapon. It does not. Um, and this is the negative side of the deal, uh, where they get $150 billion in unfrozen assets in addition to 200 to $300 billion in foreign investment, which they can do a, a lot of damage with that type of money. And what do we get in return? Really not much. Yes, they scale back some of their program, but the infrastructure, the equipment, um, all of that stuff remains. So the centrifuges that create the uranium you need for a nuclear weapon, they're not destroyed, they're just unhooked and put in, in like a lockbox and inspected. Um, so the paths to a nuclear weapon remain, the infrastructure remains, and if I was a nuke-seeking, terror-sponsoring mullah in Tehran, and you said to me, uh, what is the most efficient way to getting to a nuclear weapon and increasing your overall power, I would say sign a deal just like this. Not the fastest way to a nuclear weapon, but the most efficient way would be to go along with a deal like this. Right, absolutely. Um, so you have members of Congress, and specifically I mentioned in the intro, you have Senator Mikulski who is coming out uh, yesterday in support of the deal. Is the White House bearing down on its Senate Democrats. What is what do you think the relationship is there? And you have so you have Chuck Schumer who said, No, I'm not going to support this. What kind of pressures do you think the White House is putting on congressional leaders? Oh, severe pressure. Severe pressure. Um who knows what they can threaten in terms of their reelection campaigns, how much money the DNC would provide. Um, there was the hint from the White House uh, press secretary that Chuck Schumer might not get an endorsement for being Senate Majority Leader because he uh, opposed this deal. Senator Menendez also had a very interesting statement where he said that this deal is nothing more than a very expensive alarm clock. Right. And some of the important points that Schumer and Menendez made is that this isn't really just about nuclear weapons per se. Uh, you have to consider how this can extend the life and the power of the Iranian regime and what it does and so over the long term, it has high potential to make the overall threat much worse. There's also the, the fact that the deal ends in 10 to 15 years is when restrictions start coming off. So if the Iranians are willing to be patient for that time period, then they can come out of this as a much greater nuclear power than they currently are. As someone who has read the 160 pages of the deal, if you were to categorize categorize the, the top three elements of this deal and, and bullet points, what would they be? What should the public know uh, right off the bat before their congressman goes to vote about this deal? 
The first and the biggest element is the fact that it retains Iran's nuclear infrastructure. They remain a nuclear threshold state, which means that they can quickly develop a nuclear weapon. The Obama administration says that the Iranians at the current pace uh, are able to build a nuke in about three months. Under this deal, it would be extended to a year. Some, ex some experts say it actually is less than that. Um, so that's the counter-argument that you would expect to hear. But the bottom line is, is that the infrastructure remains. It's not rolled back. Uh, the second main point is the sanctions relief and the foreign investment that they'll get. If you look at the $150 billion in unfrozen assets that Iran will get, not even including the 200 to $300 billion in foreign investment, it's the equivalent of the U.S. getting a check for $4.3 trillion. That's what that means for the Iranian regime economy. Right. The third point I would say is think about the ideology in the regime itself, which is where the core problem lies. It's not in the country of Iran or the people. It's with the regime. And so how does this impact the regime, which is actually very weak, and I would love to see the day that it falls. This makes the regime more stable, and it delays the day when the Iranian people can become peaceful with the United States and, and their neighbors and go in the democratic direction that they desire. Because the money that happens as a result of this deal isn't going in the hands of the Iranian people. Eighty percent of the economy is state-owned. One-third is owned by the Revolutionary Guards, which is their elite security forces. And so the money is going to go in the hands of those that repress the people and pay the salaries of the thugs that repress the people and into the apparatus that will result in uh, exporting of the Iranian ideology. Because right now, if you're an Iranian, you probably don't like the regime, you don't like the ideology it stands for, because there's no evidence it improved your life. But Fine. if the regime becomes prosperous and is a regional power as a result of this deal, they can say, look, our ideology, our radical ideology actually works, and that can breed a new generation of terrorists. Ryan, who do you think initiated the the talks is it do you, do you think it was Iran or the White House because I'm looking at the different types of types of diplomacy we have track two or track one and a half and you know these officials have relationships with the Iranian government or they're back channeling that question has been virtually unanswered in that I want to understand how did this process begin and when well, that's a I've actually never been asked that question before and it's an interesting one um, because the the most immediate answer is that when President Obama came in, he said, um, if you unclench your fist, I will have a handout to shake it. And um, what happened was President Obama wrote a letter to the Iranian supreme leader saying that a, a new phase had begun in U.S.-Iranian relations if you're willing to take the opportunity. Um, and so the direct diplomacy began, whereas previously it didn't. And that was characterized by the media and the hyper-partisan mouthpieces as something extremely significant. But it actually wasn't, because the Bush administration was also negotiating with Iran. They just didn't do it directly. They did it through partners. So whether you're sending a message to the Iranians back and forth through an ally in Europe, or whether you're doing it directly, it's, it's really not that much of a difference. So there was diplomacy going on for a long time. Um, it, it was really splitting hairs, a lot of this big debate about negotiating with Iran or not negotiating with Iran, because it was already going, it was already happening. Do you know what the process or what the sentiments are now in Israel? Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has obviously come out and opposed this deal emphatically. So 
have you heard any discussions from people on the ground in Israel, and could you document or kind of clarify what their concerns are? Their concern is really – there's a few layers to it. Uh, first of all, a solid majority of the Israeli public is against the deal. Even uh, Bibi Netanyahu's main political rival is against the deal as well. Um, so I would say that there's a consensus as much as you could get in a democratic country like Israel that this deal is bad. Of course, there's that minority, and there will be experts from that minority that say it's a good thing, but the majority are against it. And they, that is because they view this as an ideological threat. To them, it's not just about stopping Iran from putting the pieces together on a nuclear weapon. It's about the fact that they have the capacity to quickly produce one and can become enriched financially to export terrorism, which is actually a more immediate threat to them than the nuclear weapon, which theoretically you might be able to detect as it's happening, maybe if you're lucky. But when you have 100,000 rockets from Hezbollah, um, aimed at you from Lebanon and Syria, uh, the Israeli concerns are, are different than that of the United States. And keep in mind that the threat from Hezbollah and Hamas from, as a result of Iranian backing is the result of a poor Iranian regime. This is what the regime does when they have to scrounge around for every penny that they can get. They still find a way to spend the money on terrorism against Israel. So now imagine what they're going to do when they actually have excess funds, if that's such a high-level priority. Even under these sanctions, which were really painful for the Iranian regime, they still increase the budget to the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps by 50%. So there is going to be a dramatic increase in terrorism. I would say you're already seeing it at a time when Hezbollah, according to some experts, was basically going broke. Things were going in our direction, and now it's going to be completely reversed, so the, the Israelis have to brace for a whole new round of Iranian-sponsored terror, terrorism, um, as well as the Iranian nuclear threat being retained. Ryan, as a procedural question, uh, some have argued that this deal, I mean, it's a deal and not a treaty. Could you talk about the difference between those two? Sure. Uh, it, it's basically, think of it this way. The administration says that this is an executive, an executive agreement that we are binded to, um, which doesn't really exist. What that means is that it's an agreement between the, the leadership of two countries, um, and as a result of this, pro, this process with Congress, uh, we are basically duty-bound to abide by it, especially because it's endorsed by the United Nations. Um, and what the Republicans would say is, well, if it's, a lead, it's um, an agreement just between the leadership of two countries, then the next leadership is not bound by it and is free to scrap it. Even though there would be negative consequences to that, they feel that it would be worth it. A treaty, uh, which would require us to legally um, abide by it indefinitely until we go through a constitutional process to reverse it, uh, would require two-thirds approval in the Senate. The compromise... Uh, is what you're seeing right now, whereas the Republicans are saying this is a treaty which, according to the Constitution and the understanding of the treaty, it actually is. But there was all this fighting between the Republicans and, and President Obama because President Obama knew that he couldn't get a treaty approved. So instead he said it's an agreement that will be approved upon by Congress. And the faulty compromise that was reached, and it was a real error by the Republicans, was that Congress would be able to vote and say whether they agree with this deal or not, and if, it, if they say no, as is expected, then the president can veto it. 
after it is vetoed, in order to actually stop it, Congress has to come up with a two-thirds majority, not the president. So what it, do, it does is politically, President Obama switched it. So the, whereas the burden was previously on him to get two-thirds support in Congress, it is now upon the Iran deal critics to get a two-thirds, which is not going to happen. Right. So I'm, I'm looking at the IAEA, and they're saying that, look, they don't need to be at some of these facilities in Iran every day. And one of my concerns with the deal, and among many, are that there's a lack of any time and anywhere sanctions. Ryan, are you concerned about that? Oh, for sure. And we have to recognize what the threshold is. What What is the standard for success here? Because it's not about necessarily finding evidence of covert Iranian nuclear activity. It's having strong enough evidence that it results in Iran being punished through this process that was set up by the deal. So here's what I mean by that. Iran can delay inspections of a site that they don't want looked at for about 24 days. Uh, so if the IAEA says, we want to inspect the Parchin nuclear site, where it's believed they worked on nuclear triggers, nuclear warheads, all this stuff that has nothing to do with an energy program, the Iranians can say no. And then the IAEA inspectors will have to provide to Iran the evidence why they want to inspect that site. So then the Iranians know what they're looking for and can clean it up. And that can go on for 24 days. After 24 days, you can theoretically um, start the process in order to launch snapback sanctions on Iran um, and, and basically torpedo the deal, say Iran is not in compliance. However, the sanctions cannot actually go into effect until after 60 days. So, here, so it's complicated. So here's what happens uh, to throw the numbers around again. Iran delays for 24 days. The process to implement sanctions begins, but sanctions aren't actually implemented until at least 60 days, and then there's still bureaucratic tricks that Iran, Russia, and China can do to extend it even longer. So when you hear people say, well, Iran gets a delay of 24 days, it's actually much longer than that. Um, and so all the Iranians have to do is clean it up to the degree possible um, to the point where we can suspect something's going on, but we can't prove it. And uh, the odds are, especially with this administration, if there isn't a smoking gun, they'll still continue the process because they don't want their diplomatic resume to explode over something that isn't a smoking gun. Let's let's talk a little bit about history. Uh, when did the when did Iran's nuclear program actually begin? Was it was it? My understanding is it began back in what sometime around 1957. Right. The nuclear program was actually begun under the Shah, but then the covert elements and the massive expansion happened under Ayatollah Khomeini after 1979, um, and it started really blowing up in the 1980s. And the way they did that was through working with black market nuclear arms dealers, right. uh, particularly on the Pakistani side. So you have the United States as the central ingredient of the, of the negotiating power, but what are the other world's powers that are coming together uh, to make sure that uh, some type of deal happens so that Iran does not get access to a nuclear weapon? It's the P5 plus one and then Russia and China. What that means is is that it's the U.S. as well as the U.K., France, Germany. Iran is also a partner to the deal, um, so they get to supervise themselves. And then Russia and China. Um, and so this coalition together is what supervises the deal. And in order to implement sanctions again, we just need the support of the U.K., France, and Germany 
in order to do so. So Russia and China theoretically can't block everything. Um, but the situation that's going to happen as a result of this deal is that you're going to have governments and international businesses, which, frankly, we all know they, they fund campaigns and politicians, um, are going to be making billions of dollars in blood money. So if the most powerful companies internationally, especially in Europe, are making so much money from the Iranians, what are the chances that these countries are going to hurt themselves a lot, to hurt the Iranians a little, for the sake of the United States in the future? It, it, it just wouldn't make sense. They would have to go against their own interests to a major degree, and that's what the Iranians are counting on, that the economic bo uh, relationship between themselves and the Europeans and these other countries will become so strong as this deal happens that they won't have to worry about sanctions in the future. And so one additional point that I would make is that this deal doesn't disarm Iran. They keep the nuclear infrastructure. It disarms the United States in multiple ways uh, because, like I said, it makes sanctions harder to implement in the future. The Iranian economy is stronger, so they can better withstand sanctions in the future if you actually get them to happen, which right. they probably won't. And then militarily, by the end of this year, they're going to have the S-300 Russian air defense system which is a game-changer to protect their nuclear sites from an aerial attack, and the U.N. arms embargo is lifted so Iran can upgrade their military, their combat aircraft, their warships, their missiles, tanks, artillery systems. So the future Iran is much in a much greater position to withstand or deter a military attack or an economic attack from the U.S. or Israel. Ryan, looking back at how... Iran's nuclear pro uh, program actually began. What is the what is the background to that story? How did they begin uh, with with this process? And have other nations around the country, including the United States, throughout history, have they sought to stop this program from enhancing uh, with nuclear pro uh, proliferation? They have, and the fact that Iran doesn't have a massive nuclear arsenal by now, when they've been working on it this long, I would say. The, the real starting parts of the 1980s, that's when the black market activity was happening, um, is really kind of a miracle. It's a success story. As bad as things are, the fact that they don't have a massive nuclear arsenal now um, shows that we've had a lot of luck on our side, and we've also had uh, a, a lot of success in terms of sanctions and international cooperation. And so in the 1980s, they started this covert nuclear program um, using all these false fronts to deal with the, the father of the Pakistani nuclear program, get the centrifuges, get all the technology, get all the knowledge that they need in order to develop a nuclear weapon, and get the equipment going. Um, tough sanctions really started in the 1990s under the Clinton administration. Um, and by tough, I mean compared to what it was before. It was still a far cry from what we're capable of. Um, and then thanks to sabotage, international pressure, and just the natural technical calamities that happen with an advanced nuclear program. There's always going to be mistakes, especially when you're relying on old technology from the black market. Uh, we've been able to delay it over time. Uh, one of the major factors is sabotage. We know that there was the cyber warfare attack called Stuxnet, sure. which was very effective in smashing the Iranian centrifuges and causing a lot of chaos over there. Iranian nuclear scientists were ending up dead in the street. When you follow the news closely out of Iran, and you look at how many accidental, supposedly, explosions were happening at their nuclear facilities and at other sites suspected of being connected to the nuclear program, uh, when it really ramped up, I was counting like one every few weeks. It was amazing. Yeah. Um, but then it stopped. 
and it stopped because of the interim nuclear deal. At that point, it just suddenly ended. So it's obvious that there was a covert program that ended because we didn't want to undermine the negotiations. And now what's really frightening is that as part of the deal, most people don't know this, we are required to train the Iranians on how to prevent the sabotage of their nuclear facilities. So we are also disarmed on that level. Earlier I mentioned the economic weapons being disarmed, our military options being disarmed or at least minimized. Well, the covert option is also being minimized because we have to train the Iranians in how to protect their sites. Wow. Wow. Uh, So I want to go to the very basics. And people ask this question frequently, and I've heard it asked many times over. What does it require to build a nuclear weapon? And to the very basic is why would a country even want one? Well, you want one because you want to use it. Uh, Maybe there's a country who you'd like to wipe off the face of the earth like Iran wants to do to Israel, and a nuclear weapon will do it. The former president of Iran, Rafsanjani, who is known as a moderate in Iran these days, that's one of the moderates that the president talks about when he defends his deals, Rafsanjani. And he actually said uh, in 2001, after 9-11, he said that it it was possible, that it was a realistic scenario where the Islamic world would nuke Israel, Israel would retaliate with nuclear weapons, but it would be worth it because Israel would be extinguished and the Islamic world would be able to recover from their partial damage. And that's one of the individuals in Iran who supports the deal. So when President Obama says that critics of the deal are making common cause with those shouting death to America and the hardliners in Iran, the supporters of the deal are saying the same thing. They even talked about nuking Israel. They're saying things worse than the so-called hardliners. It's all, so it's a, a giant mirage. Um, but as for the, the process for getting a nuclear weapon, basically what you have to do is, for the uranium track, you have to mine the uranium up out of the ground, which Iran has, and they also could do it out of Venezuela or import it from another country. Uh, you then have to bring it into a facility that turns it into a, a gaseous form, UF-6, and then you take that gas and you put it into the centrifuges. The centrifuges spin really fast. I think it's like 60,000 rotations per minute. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to balance them, and that's, that's complicated, but the Iranians have already figured out how to do it. When they spin it, the process of what's called enriching happens, and you have to enrich to, the, to about 90%, um, which is removing certain elements so that a nuclear explosion can happen. You can turn this into something that you use. And then you have the enriched uranium. So you have the core uranium. After it goes through the centrifuges, you have enriched uranium to a certain degree. And if you reach the 90% degree, you have the fuel for a nuclear weapon. And at that point, you need the trigger um, that sets off the explosion within the device, the explosive in there that, that strikes with the uranium in order to set it off. And you need the missile, the missile that you put the nuclear warhead um, onto that then delivers it. And you can deliver it two ways. You can either strike a target, which is the typical way most people think of, or you detonate it in the sky in what's called an electromagnetic pulse, EMP attack. And that's where no one is immediately killed, but depending on the altitude that you detonate that missile at, uh, you can wipe out the electronic components across the continental United States if you know what you're doing. If you don't know what you're doing, you can just use two of them and pull it off that way. And uh, according to the government, if Iran were to launch a successful EMP attack, 
the U.S. would be thrown back to like the year 1800 or something like that, um, and the majority of the population would die within two years. And that's according to a government report, not a Hollywood screenwriter. Right. Uh, and that is salient, it's clear, and it's obvious. And some people, though, have accused Republicans who are not supporting the deal, who are opposed to it, that they are fear-mongering. How would you answer that accusation, Ryan? Well, one of the accusations also that we're warmongering, and what I would say is, is that anti-war activists should be criticizing this deal. This deal escalates the current war that we are in because Iran declared war on us in 1979. When you declare jihad on an enemy, that's the Islamic vernacular for declaring war. Uh, denying that is like saying if Hitler declared war on the U.S. and German, well, it's not a declaration of war because he didn't say it in English. Um, so the fact is we are at war with the Iranians. They are hunting and trying to kill our soldiers that are serving in Afghanistan. And soon I'm sure they'll be hunting the ones in Iraq once they want them to leave um, bad enough. And it also increases the chances of war in the future because every factor that causes a war is increased by this deal. Uh, you have the Iranians that are promoting bigotry and have a radical agenda, and you're giving them greater ability to pursue it. So it's a really terrible deal, um, and it's not fear-mongering because it's based in not hypothetical scenarios. So It's based in what Iran is doing today and making the reasonable conclusion that it will expand with greater resources. And as for the EMP and uh, a nuclear attack, yes, that's a hypothetical scenario, but we've seen Iran training for that hypothetical scenario. There's one Iranian military manual that mentions using an EMP 20 times. So they say that this is the way they would attack us. And who can blame them? It's extremely effective, very easy to do. You don't even have to have an ICBM, even though they're working on that as well. You just have to launch it off of a shipping vessel off of our coast before it can be detected, which it won't be uh, because if you don't dock it, and then detonate it. Very easy to do. Now, so I want to shift directions just a little bit, and I want to talk about some of the other interests uh, from other countries standing the game from this deal. And, Ryan, I want to ask you, what are your thoughts on the likelihood of the Syrian regime and Hezbollah bending from Iran's windfall? They've already said that they would. Hezbollah yeah. has said that uh, they are expecting an influx of money as a result of this. They're hailing the nuclear deals of victory. And which they would say no matter what, they always shout victory. But when they specifically say that they're expecting an influx of money, that's a realistic expectation. And so the Assad regime in Syria um, is definitely going to get more aid from the Iranians because even when the Iranians have so little to give, they're finding a way to give it. It is such a high priority to them that when their people are starving and the Iranian regime is unstable and their economy is collapsing, they say preserving the Syrian regime and sponsoring terror is so important that even under those circumstances, we have to give to them. Uh, so once they have this excess money, it's definitely going to go right in there. And according to some estimates of how much money their sponsorship of terrorism is, it's about 5 to $6 billion a year. It's, it's not that much. So with $150 billion in unfrozen assets and 200 to $300 billion in foreign investment – which then generates additional revenue, they're going to have more than enough money to increase their support to terrorism and to the Assad regime many, many times over. The Iranian defense budget is only $30 billion. 
So and the salary that they pay, their tal- the Taliban fighters, which most people don't know, Iran sponsors the Taliban to kill kill our soldiers. They only pay them about five hundred and eighty dollars every single month. So when you're talking about billions and billions of dollars, what that can do for terrorism is really frightening. Who who are the main players at the table for as far as the Iranians who are negotiating with the United States? Well, they have the negotiators that are led by the foreign minister, Zarif, uh, who is known as a likable guy. The negotiators themselves scream and, and, and are very confrontational. It's a good cop, bad cop routine. But the foreign minister presents himself as a reasonable moderate, and the line that they use is, look at the hardliners back in the, within the Iranian regime that say things more outrageous than I do. Go along with this deal to strengthen my position, me, the moderate, so I can combat those hardliners. And then President Obama says the same thing. He says we need this deal um, so that the moderates in America come are victorious, as opposed to those Republican hardliners and their Democratic allies who are making common calls with the Iranian headliners. So what the Iranians did is they, pl- they played the desire of President Obama for m- the moderate political forces in both countries to come forth. And they said, this is the way that you, the moderate in America, can succeed, as well as us, the moderates in Iran, can succeed. And we both have to push back the extremists in our countries. And so that's the line that they use, and it's, you can see it being parroted by President Obama today. I find it interesting how some of the, the Democrats uh, on the, the very far-left wing, uh, some of the more stringent anti-war activists, are the same Democrats who are openly supporting this deal. Is that a paradox? I would argue it is. From their perspective, they say this deal is the best option to avoid war, that we've reached the point now where the Iranian program has has expanded to such a degree that if we want to stop Iran from becoming a nuclear power, we have to bomb them. The only other option is to go along with this deal that pushes back their program a little bit. Um, And yes, there's disastrous consequences, but it's better than war. And it's true that a military strike on Iran could be very, very bad. There could be things that result from that that we're not even predicting. Um, So I'm not someone that says, let's go bomb Iran right now, and there are some that advocate that. I'm coming at this from the same anti-war position that Democrats who support the deal are coming from. But I'm arguing that the Iranian regime, if you look at all everything that they do and everything they intend to do, that this deal makes war far more likely. It's going to escalate the regional war in places like Yemen that you're seeing. It's going to increase the threat to Middle Eastern peace because Hamas is going to be strengthened. It's also going to strengthen ISIS, and that's part of the equation that's not often mentioned, because people say this deal could lead to greater cooperation between the U.S. and Iran against ISIS. But Iranian influence and the Assad regime in Syria that they sponsor creates the environment where ISIS prospers. Wherever Iranian influence rises up, radical Shiite influence rises up, radical Sunnis then come in to fill the power vacuum like ISIS and say, we're going to protect you from those evil Iranians, and then the more reasonable people in the middle are, are pushed over to the side, and it becomes a fight between ISIS and Iran. So they each thrive off of each other. Right. Ryan, in, in Iran, what is the, what's the religious breakdown? What's the sectarian uh, style of religion, uh, Sunnis versus Shiites? 
uh, the vast majority are Shiites, even among the Arabs that live there, and so it gives the impression that this is a very unified country. Um, but it, it actually isn't, because there's identities that are greater than just being a Shiite. Within Shiite Islam, there's going to be different branches, and so there are those that are more modern, um, that, especially those in places like Iraq uh, and even Bahrain, uh, who say that our version of Shia Islam is not the Shia Islam of the Iranian regime. We don't believe that they are practicing our faith correctly, and we want to move in a more democratic gener direction, and we believe that's compatible with our faith. So within Shia Islam, there's that huge divide, and that divide does not work to the Iranian regime's favor. Hence, that's why they have to shoot people in the streets. As for the demographics of Iran, uh, you can even see why Iran is even more um, fractured than that. Because look at the ethnic groups. Only about 51%, some say it's even less than 50%, of the country are what you call Iranian or Persian, I should say. Mm -hmm. The rest are minorities, like Arabs and Kurds and Baluch and Azeris and all, the, and all these other minorities who, are, who feel left out and oppressed by the regime. So right off the bat, you have about 49% of the population that are minorities that don't feel represented by the regime. Then you add on top of that, of the 51% that are Persian, the majority of those, as we know from the Green Revolution, detest the regime. So you're looking at at least 75% of the population doesn't like the regime there. Yeah, I mean, is it, it's a staggering figure that what, it's like 19 or 20% of the Iranian population is under the age of, I think, 25. Or, or I might be incorrect on that, but I, I, that is a statistic that I've been hearing over and over it's again. It's better than so, that, actually. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's better because over 60% are under the age of 30 or 35, I forget. But it's a very young, vibrant population. Um, during the Green Revolution, one of the most powerful moments for me was when it was reported through Iranian and, and regional outlets, but not in the American media, the regime set up loudspeakers and started chanting death to Israel, death to America, because they wanted to channel the anger of the population against the West. And what they chanted back was, Death to Russia, death to China. You know, they, they're that pro-American. And I talked to an Iranian who was in prison for several years uh, just a couple days ago, um, and he, he was telling me the story of how Iranians very often will wear red, white, and blue because wow. you can't police colors. And so they won't wear the American flag, but if you're wearing red, white, and blue, it's a sign um, from one Iranian to another whose side they're on. And they even have American flags hidden in their homes sometimes. Wow, that and that leads me into sort of the next uh, the next point of our conversation is what is the temperature on the ground? What are the Iranian people saying? What's their reactions, and what is it they truly want with their government? The polls indicate, and polls are going to be they're going to lack credibility because if you're calling Iranians and saying do you support the Iranian regime or not, you're going to say yes because you're going to assume it's a secret service. But the polls indicate that the Iranian people uh, generally support the deal, and I think it's because they, they're coming at it from a different perspective. They are poor. They're, they're really suffering. And so even if they hate the regime, if they hear that their economic suffering is going to be alleviated um, and war is going to be less likely, they're going to say, okay, uh, I like this deal. And, and that's kind of it for the thought process. Um, in their mind, it's not they're not saying, oh, well, this deal is going to increase the life of the regime because in their mind, all right, it's a police state um, that eventually will overthrow, and this deal isn't connected to that. 
Um, so it, it's a complex situation there where the Iranian people would, I think, support the deal based on the data, uh, but they still hate the regime. They want greater political freedom. They want to have a relationship with the United States. They're hoping that the deal will open up the country to Western influence, which they crave so much. Um, and, and so that's kind of the temperature on the ground. In the coast of Iran, there's actually a lot of fighting you don't hear about. You hear about the there's the Baluch um, militants, some of which are radical Islamic Sunnis, so they're not always great. Um, in the east, that are fighting the police. The Kurds sometimes riot and fight the Iranian security forces. So there's a real opportunity for a Reaganite strategy that supports the democratic opposition within Iran to overthrow the regime. It would be far easier to do this in Iran than it was in Eastern Europe in the 1980s. Yeah, spe- speaking of which, um, you know, in addition to Iran, which who are seemingly the big winner in this deal, what do you think the Russians are going to stand to gain from this? The Russians come from a KGB mindset. So on the one hand, you would assume that Russia would want to restrain Iran because of their ideology. They promote radical Islam. Russia has a major threat from radical Islamic terrorists. How does this make any sense? But the Russians still operate from this KGB mindset. They view everything in terms of a geopolitical chessboard. And so Iran is a geopolitical ally. They are a check on Western influence in the Middle East. Their only um, naval base outside of the country um, is on the Mediterranean within Syria. So they want the Assad regime to stay in power so they can keep that naval base. Plus they view the Syrian regime as basically their client state. Um, so for Iran, this is a geopolitical battle, and that's why they support the, the Syrian and Iranian regimes. Um, even economically, it goes against their interests to support this deal, because if Iran starts supplying Europe with natural gas, that alleviates Europe's dependency upon Russia for natural gas. And so that just shows how twisted the Russian mindset is, is that they're so focused on this Cold War mentality that they fail to see the economic damage they do to themselves and the national security damage that they do themselves as a result of this deal. They're also happy because they're going to sell a ton of arms to Iran and also buy a lot of their oil at cheap prices, which they've already said that they would do. So Russia right now is negotiating with Iran the sale of advanced combat aircraft to patrol their skies. Um, That, again, makes it harder for us to exercise the military option in the future. And like I said, they're going to send the S-300 air defense system four of them, to Iran by the end of this year, which is a very advanced air defense system uh, that allows Iran to severely complicate, if not completely deter, an Israeli or American military strike in the future once it goes live. Speaking of the military option, and that is a question on many of our minds, is that if this deal breaks down and that the Iranians what they mean, what they're historically used to doing is not adhering to the terms of this discussion set forth. Is is a military option definitively on the table should this deal fall through? It's on the table, but the question isn't whether a military attack can be launched. It's about whether the cost will become so high that the political leadership wouldn't authorize it. A military strike would only delay the Iranian nuclear program by two to four years. So you're not getting a lot of bang for your buck. So it better be a cheap operation. If the leadership says, okay, we're only going to delay the Iranian nuclear program for two to four years, but then in return, the cost because of the S-300 air defense system and the combat aircraft Iran has, uh, we're losing a huge amount of the pilots that we send in there. 
many of which may be captured by the Iranian regime and tortured or held for ransom. And then there's the regional response of Hezbollah and Hamas, so you have a regional war. Uh, all of a sudden, the pol political leadership says the equation has changed, and it's just not worth it. And that's what's happened in Israel previously. We know there were three times Israel almost bombed Iran. The first time they decided that they didn't yet have the necessary capability to be effective enough. Uh, the second time uh, was due to international pressure um, and the military leadership within Israel pushing back and saying um, that the cost would be too high and it was better to wait. We weren't yet at that point. And then the last time was around the 2012 elections, and so there was a, a concern that would look like Israeli meddling in the U.S. election, and, and it would have it would have harmed U.S.-Israeli relations. So Iran's government, they did not focus on what its government must do to diminish its nuclear program, but instead it was the U.S. State Department who did that. And you know, it says that Iran, it will keep its uranium enrichment levels at no more than 3.6% which would be down from near 20%. It's going to maintain a uranium stockpile at the prescribed, at the at the level, what, under 300 kilograms, well below its current 10,000-kilogram stockpile. And President Obama said that this works out to Iran reducing its nuclear stockpile by 98%. Ryan, is that, is that an accurate figure? They're accurate figures, but they're misleading in how they're presented. Uh, first of all, you can sell off a lot of your uranium and still mine more, especially when you have foreign investment in order to to do that with. They can also get more uranium from North Korea, from Niger, Zimbabwe, and Venezuela, which the Iranians have talked to them about doing previously. So getting rid of their uranium stockpile, the core uranium, isn't that big of a deal. Um, and they are expanding their mining operations in order to do that. Um, a good portion of the Iranian uranium um, that is enriched, that they're supposedly giving up, is being turned into an oxide, um, and that cannot be used in a weapon. However, what the administration leaves out of that is that it is reversible. Just as you can turn that enriched uranium into this supposedly harmless oxide, you can move it right back to enriched uranium for a nuclear weapon, and scientists say that that's easy to do. It's, it doesn't involve a lot of time. So are you really giving up? Not, not really. Um, as for the 3.5 versus 20%, that sounds like a lot, but enriching uranium to 3.5% still gives you about, within about six months, you can enrich it to the levels that you need for a nuclear weapon. 20% um, is, I think, three months or, or less. Um, I may be off on that, but it's a very short period of time. So the layman will hear, oh, well, a drop from 20% to 3.5%, that sounds like a lot numerically, but when it comes to developing a nuclear weapon, it's actually very minor. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about some politics, and we have a presidential election coming up next year, and President Obama will, uh, on, uh, will soon be out of office, but everything that presidential candidates say – on both the Democratic and Republican side, they have consequence, especially in regards to this deal. Have cutting through a lot of the background noise, and there is a lot that I have been seeing, especially on the cable news. And you know, most of the candidates, I, th I think, all the Republican candidates are universally opposed to the deal, but there's varying degrees. Can you talk a little bit about the politics and what you're seeing from some of these presidential candidates? Sure. On the Democratic side, the only one who opposes the deal is Jim Webb, um, who is a pretty cool guy. If you go to clarionproject.org, 
Um, he, he's just an interesting person. But if you go to clarionproject.org, we have a, a specific page where you can look at fact sheets for each candidate that has been declared. Um, so Joe Biden's not on there yet. And you can see their positions on fighting Islamic extremism. And I try to rip away the rhetoric. I want to focus specifically on things they support, things they oppose, and what they would do as opposed to just beating your chest and saying, I'm going to be tough on national security and, and getting applause lines. I, I want to know what they're actually going to do. On the Democratic side, they all support the nuclear deal, except for Jim Webb, who openly opposes it. Hillary Clinton's previous statements would indicate that she privately opposes the deal, but she publicly supports it, because the deal falls, falls way short of what she said a deal should look like. You, you just can't mesh the two. So it'll be interesting to see her try to try to fix all that politically, um, that flip-flop. Um, the Repu- on the Republican side, what you mostly hear about is this dispute between Walker and Bush, where Walker says on the first day he'll scrap the deal. Um, Bush and then also Christie say that you, you can't really do it the first day. You want to get your Secretary of State in at least so that you can deal with the consequences and kind of think this through. Um, but they would both scrap the deal in the short order. So it, 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 it's kind of a stupid argument that I think is a waste of time. Um, the real division, I think, comes with Rand Paul, um, as well as Donald Trump, um, because Rand Paul um, says that he would scrap the deal if Iran breaks it, um, whereas the others are saying they would just scrap it altogether. It's not contingent upon Iran scrapping it, or Iran violating it. And the reason that's so important is because by complying with the deal, if Iran actually does comply with the deal, they still expand their power and their nuclear capacity. So the issue isn't Iranian compliance versus non-compliance. The issue is what happens in either scenario is basically the same result. They can either break the deal in a few years um, when they're in a much stronger position and then they've gained everything uh, that they wanted to, or they can fully comply with the deal for 10 to 15 years and then come out even stronger. The longer they wait, the greater their nuclear capacity and their overall power grows. It's just a question of Iranian patience. On Tuesday uh, in a CNN interview, uh, telephone interview, Republican presidential hopeful Donald Trump said that under the auspices of the Iranian nuclear agreement, if Israel were to attack the Islamic Republic, the United States would have to come to the uh, to Tehran's aid. Is that a is that a valid statement? It's a bit of an overstatement, um, but what it does do is say that, like I said before, America provides Iran with the ability to protect their nuclear facilities from sabotage. And the lifting of the arms embargo means other countries can sell arms to Iran um, and all this and that. Uh, So in a way, we are protecting Iran from an Israeli strike because we're teaching them how to protect their nuclear facilities from sabotage that very likely comes from the Israelis. But the way he said it indicates like the U.S. would have to go to war with Israel if they attack Iran, and that's not the case. No, and I think that's a little bit of hyperbole and, you know, the the standard Trumpisms uh, that yeah, right. we've, we've all inevitably come to, to, I guess, put up with throughout this campaign. Is there someone in the Republican field among the 1,500 candidates who are running uh, that you believe has the best position on the deal and who – or who understands it uh, more vibrantly than uh, among the other candidates? 
It's a good question. Um, all of them oppose the deal on, on basically the same merits. Um, and, and so the basic understanding of the candidates who oppose it is the same, that it retains a nuclear infrastructure. Over the long term, it increases the threat. Um, some of the more complicated geopolitical stuff, what I was arguing about the Iranian ideology, that's more policy wonk stuff that you're not go that's very important, but you're not going to hear from the presidential candidates necessarily, although if they did say it, I would cheer. Um, in terms of understanding Iran overall, um, specifically with the regime change element, even though that's a dirty word, I personally want candidates to say how they're going to end the life of the Iranian regime and help the Iranian people, which is something you can do while still complying with the, Ira with the nuclear deal, by the way. I can talk about that in a second. But I want the candidates who are going to talk about undermining the Iranian regime and recognizing this isn't just about nuclear weapons. Um, Huckabee came out the other day and outlined a plan to undermine the Iranian regime and, cause, and spark a new green revolution that would be victorious, and he had some very specific ideas I thought were good. Um, Rick Santorum, I would say, has done the most to actually make that happen. He was one of the co-authors of legislation in Congress to spend $100 million on the Iranian opposition all the way back in, uh, he was advocating for it before 2006, but I think 2006 was when it was signed. They were around there. Um, so he's been far ahead on this issue. Uh, Rick Perry's talked about undermining the Iranian regime in, in less specific terms, but he has said that that's an, a, an objective. Um, and I, I think that's, that's really about it. All of them will say that we should have been more vocally supportive of the Green Revolution, but that's 2009. I want to hear about what you're going to do in the future. Right, and you have Secretary Clinton who comes into this equation. What will be her role in discussing the Iranian deal should on the debate stage, and how how do you think that uh, Senator Bernie Sanders or former Governor Martin O'Malley and uh, Jim Webb, who obviously is the outlier among the group of, of Democrats running for president, and Lincoln Chafee, how do you think that they're going to look at this and maybe uh, – is there a way that the Democrat – Democratic other Democratic candidates can attack Hillary from the perspective of her work in the Obama administration? How would that work politically? Jim Webb is going to be the one that just slaughters her on foreign policy. Uh, it's going, when she's on that debate stage, it's going to be worse than people expect because you're going to have Bernie Sanders who is going to attack her from the economic side from a real authentic way. Um, and I really like Bernie Sanders just because, he, uh, even though I'm not an economist, I just he's so authentic, and he has a lot of data w whenever he talks. That's going to be tough. And then you're going to have Jim Webb, who is opposed right from the start, the war in Iraq, ferociously opposed Hillary Clinton's um, support for the war in Libya, the military intervention there. Um, and he, he is a foreign policy expert. Whether I agree with him or not, he's, a, he's an expert, and you've got to respect his opinion, and I think that will come off. And so he'll criticize the nuclear deal, and he'll be the one that gets the Democratic vote, of which there's a sizable amount against the nuclear deal. There's a sizable number of Democrats that will like Jim Webb for that. Um, Hillary Clinton, she probably won't say this on the debate stage, but she has talked in her book about different ways that we could support Democratic movements in places like Iran, um, which I think are, are very, very positive and unique, and I wish mm -hmm. other candidates would adopt. And you can see that on our website on her fact sheet page. Um, the Republicans, um, I, I, I'm not sure you're going to see much of a difference between them. Um, I'm hoping someone will confront Rand Paul about his position that he won't scrap the deal unless Iran uh, violates it because Iranian compliance 
you can argue is actually a much bigger threat than Iranian noncompliance. Yeah, so that was going to be my next question is other Republicans. Is Rand Paul the, the outlier in the group and that he has a markedly different position than the 16 other candidates who are running? As of right now, and it can always change because it's Donald Trump. Donald Trump is in the same category as Rand Paul, uh, whereas Rand Paul says it's about noncompliance, and Trump says that he will police the deal, which I take to mean um, he's going to be really tough on the Iranians in regards to compliance. Um, Christie is – he hasn't said that he will scrap the deal. Um, he has said that he will review it and kind of see how things are once he has a secretary of state in and the, and a full government in, um, which indicates to me that he doesn't fully grasp the danger of Iran complying with the deal. So I put those three in one category um, and then everyone else in the other. Okay, yeah, that's a fair statement, and I, I've been hearing some intelligent conversations coming out of the Carly Fiorina camp. Any any perspective into that? Sure. Uh, she's very impressive with the things that she says um, on foreign policy, just talking about a Camp David summit with having our Arab leaders and getting a list for what it is that they need in order to de- defeat ISIS. Uh, when she talks about how even when our Arab allies go to fight ISIS, we don't give them the necessary support. Um, so, so that's impressive. There is an issue that's going to probably come up that mo- 99% of people don't know about, um, which is the fact that when she was leading Hewlett-Packard, there was a subsidiary of Hewlett-Packard that was making possibly illegal transactions to Iran. And that came up when she ran for Senate, um, but it hasn't come up in the presidential contest. Um, and so I lay out both sides of that argument in her fact sheet at clarionproject.org. So you can just go there, go to the election page, and then click on Carly Fiorina's fact sheet, and then decide for yourself how severe of a problem that is. Uh, But nonetheless, it it still does provide a a talking point to one of her rivals to say, look, you you ran a company that was doing business with the Iranian regime, and some experts say was illegal. So... Ryan, in the final two minutes of our conversation, what do you want people who know a l- very little about the deal? What do you want them? What do you want to lead them with from this conversation as Congress takes uh, will we'll soon take a vote and decide a a serious and long term uh, foreign strategy uh, for many years to come. I would say recognize that once this deal goes through, as it looks like it's going to, the fight's not over. So this conversation that we just had is just as relevant if the deal goes through or not, because there are things that can be done. On an individual basis, you can sanction Iran by investing in terror-free mutual funds. There's actually a terror-free calculator online, so you can check your stocks to make sure that you're not investing in companies that do business with Iran. So you can punish Iran on a personal level and say, regardless of what the administration does, I'm going to sanction the Iranian regime. And even right now, they need every penny that they can get. So it hurts them, trust me. On the state and local level, there are different divestment programs. Martin O'Malley deserves credit for divesting from Iran as uh, governor of Maryland. Um, So on the state and local level, you can sanction Iran. Uh, So there's many options that we have moving forward. And let's always keep our eye on the prize, which is peace between the U.S. and Iran, which requires the replacement of the Iranian regime. And and that's how we should view our foreign policy, with that objective in mind. Anything that delays that objective being completed is something that we should not embrace.
Ryan, where can we for, find more information about you? I would say you can go to my bio website, which is ryanmorrow.com, M-A-U-R-O. But sign up for our newsletter at clarionproject.org, which goes out about usually about twice a week. And then you can get uh, my articles and the articles that the other workers at the Clarion Project put out so you can be kept informed. Sounds good. Ryan, I cannot thank you enough for this informative conversation. I hope you come back. And, again, I appreciate your time in this thoughtful conversation. Definitely. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. Take care. Bye.